You are listening to the Biography Podcast presented by LearnOutLoud.com. With this series, we will explore the lives of notable people throughout history. For a complete listing of the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the first lecture from the Modern Scholar course, The Literature of C.S. Lewis, taught by Professor Timothy B. Shutt. To check out this course and over a hundred other courses from the Modern Scholar series, please visit our website at www.learnoutloud.com slash modernscholar. In this lecture, Professor Timothy Shutt provides an overview of the life and literature of C.S. Lewis. He mentions various viewpoints that people have had about Lewis historically and argues why he thinks Lewis is more popular now than he ever was in his time. He then breaks Lewis's work into three major categories, his Christian apologetic work, his fictional works, including the Chronicles of Narnia, and his scholarly works. He finally discusses each category here and examines how Lewis's work has gained a following, particularly in the areas of apologetics and fiction. This serves as a good introduction to this masterful writer and storyteller. Recorded Books is pleased to present the Modern Scholar series, where great professors teach you. My name is Jack Garrett. And I'll be your host. Today we begin a course entitled The Literature of C.S. Lewis. Your professor is Timothy Shutt of Kenyon University. Professor Shutt earned his B.A. in English Literature at Yale and his Ph.D. in Medieval Literature and the History of Ideas at the University of Virginia. Since 1986, Professor Shutt has taught at Kenyon College in the English Department and in the college's unique Integrated Program in Human Studies, an interdisciplinary program which focuses on the great books of literature, philosophy, history, art history, religion, and science. In addition to numerous academic publications, Shutt has also written extensively on military history, baseball, and birding. Most people are familiar with the name of C.S. Lewis from his beloved series of children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia. The land of Narnia has fascinated generations of readers who followed the journeys of boys and girls drawn from earth to an otherworldly place of talking animals and high adventure. But for all their compelling stories, the Chronicles are also allegorical works that explore the complicated spiritual struggles of faith. Lewis, a veteran of the Great War, academic medievalist, Christian apologist, and popular author, wrote the Chronicles with the same serious intentions that he brought to all of his work. Without being preachy or overbearing, Lewis wanted to share with the reader his private vision of life and faith one that centered on a devotion to joy. Lewis titled the autobiography of his early years, Surprised by Joy. And it is this feeling of sudden gladness and well-being that he believed to be the great affirmation and validation of life. In this course, we'll explore the land of Narnia, as well as Lewis's less well-known fictions and his respected apologetic works. As we examine the story of the man who once wrote, Joy 
is the serious business of heaven, and made it the serious business of his life. For more information on this course, please visit its webpage at www.modernscholar.com, where you'll have access to links to related sites, a seminar room to share your thoughts with other students, and yes, of course, a final exam. And now we begin The Literature of C.S. Lewis, Lecture 1. C.S. Lewis, Reputation and Influence. And now, Professor Shutt. Welcome to our course on the works of C.S. Lewis. We'll be focusing largely on his fictional works, but we'll have occasion to take a look at some of his apologetical works and indeed even a little bit of discussion, not too much, but a little bit on his scholarly works as well. He is, to begin with, as doubtless you know, a much-admired and well-beloved author. Those who like the works of C.S. Lewis tend to like them a lot, and to like him a lot. And for lots of readers, he occupies a kind of special place. Since his death in 1963, oddly enough, he has grown progressively more popular and more influential, and his books sell better now than they ever have. And they sell very well indeed, and there are lots of them. Over the course of his life, once he hit his stride, he really got going after he was in his 30s, he wrote well more than 40 books, and we'll be taking a look at a lot of them. Despite his popularity, though, and despite the affection that he generates in many readers, he is, in other contexts, a controversial writer. He is not to everyone's taste and to many readers and to many who have not read C.S. Lewis. No doubt about it, he is suspect. He describes a scene, actually, in The Last Battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, probably his most famous works, where all of the conscious beings in Narnia, humans, dwarves, fawns, and the whole panoply of Narnian creatures, are summoned to the face of Aslan, the great lion. And when they come to Aslan, one after another, they either look on his face with rejoicing, this is what I've always wanted, or they turn away with fear, discomfort, and dislike. Lewis himself and his works evoke a similar kind of reaction to people, as he well knew. People tend either to like him a lot and find that his works take them somewhere or fulfill in them some deep need, or find them oppressive and repellent. 
And the reason, again, is very much the same. His central talent, I would argue, outside of his sheer raw skill as a writer and verbal craft in readability, which is very, very good, superb, his greatest ability is an ability to evoke what he calls joy. And before we go any further, since this joy, what he calls joy, is a keynote throughout all of his fictional works and indeed through his apologetic works as well, I want to talk a little bit about what that is and what that means to him. So what is this joy that, for Lewis, is the most important thing in life and is the keynote, in fact, of all of his fictional works and in some sense of all of his apologetic works as well. He tells us that it first came over him when he was a very little boy. His brother made on what he calls a biscuit tin, that is, biscuits in England are cookies, what we would call cookies in America. It's a, it's a little metal lid. His brother made a toy garden. And Lewis looked at the garden and felt sweeping over him a kind of yearning. He later on describes it. He says, then this reminded him of that cookie tin. He stood beside a flowering currant bush and joy swept over him. It's difficult, he writes in his autobiography, to find words strong enough for the sensation. A blissful yearning or desire for he knew not what, only that unfulfilled as it was unfulfilled as he came to believe it must be, it was itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I doubt, Lewis says, that anyone who has tasted it would ever exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. Then, reading In a work by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the American poet working from the Norse or Icelandic sagas, he read the following passage, and it just pierced him. Here's the passage. I heard a voice that cried, Balder, the beautiful, is dead. Is dead. Lewis says, I knew nothing about Balder the Norse god slain by the trickster Loki, but instantly I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described, except that it's cold, spacious, severe, pale, and remote. And then I found myself at the very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I were back in it. In Dante's Vita Nuova, and Dante was one of Lewis's favorite authors, maybe his favorite author simply, Dante tells us that when he was nine years old, he was walking down a street in Florence, and he saw, dressed in the noblest color, a beautiful crimson, a young woman of utterly transcendent beauty and grace. And at that moment, says Dante, my new life began, my vita nuova, and I was changed 
within. At that moment, I felt myself ennobled. I felt it would be impossible for me to do anything unworthy. I was transformed. And Dante pursues that vision in his work all the way through, in later years, the Divine Comedy to the very presence of God himself. The young girl's name in real life was Beatrice Portinari, Beatrice, bringer of blessings, as her name means. And that feeling that she evokes in Dante transforms his life, converts him, and forms a lodestar for him for the rest of his life. That is what joy is to C.S. Lewis. He uses it, and he is quite explicit about this, as a technical term. He says joy, as he defines it, is the sweetest and best of all sensations, but it's a kind of yearning, almost a kind of an ache. It's not happiness as ordinarily conceived, nor is it cheerfulness, nor is it jolliness, nor is it a good mood. It's a kind of an unsatisfiable ache for a beyond which is there and is not there, which for Lewis was evoked by the northern sky, by the vision of wide, glowing, empty space. To some extent, in Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, it's a quotation from a sonnet by William Wordsworth. He was surprised, taken by surprise, by the presence of joy in his life and the importance of joy in his life. To some degree in that work, Lewis is being just a touch coy with us. He knows perfectly well what joy is later. He didn't, he claims, and I believe him, he didn't when he was a child. He didn't when he heard that Balder the Beautiful was dead was dead. He didn't when he saw his brother's toy garden in the biscuit tin. But he did later on. And what joy is for Lewis, finally, to give it a plainer name, is religious experience. It's the felt presence of God. Joy for Lewis is what religious experience feels like. Not directly a pleasure, but this guiding sense of yearning and presence, this ache. And it is his belief, deeply held, that in following joy, just like Dante in following Beatrice, joy is Beatrice. Joy for Lewis is a bringer of blessings. Joy for Lewis is, in effect, revelation for you. In following that, you will be brought to fulfill your destiny. That is his profoundly held belief in his own life. And so he hopes in the lives of those who read his books. And he knows perfectly well also that joy in this sense cannot be explained. Still less can it be argued. You can't argue somebody into it. It can only be evoked or called up. That's why you have to be surprised by joy. It's something that comes over you. It's not something that you come to. As Lewis himself is, says at one point, you can build an altar so that the fire will come somewhere else. It's not 
exactly within our power or purview. You can call it up, but you can't explain somebody into it. Joy is also, to put it in another sense for Lewis, the door to the other world. And Lewis is, above all, the poet, so to speak, of the other world. That is his stock and trade. That's what he's interested in. So what is the other world that joy reveals? Well, you can see it not just there, I think. It's also revealed to varying extents and degrees, for Lewis at least, in dreams, in vision, in imagination, in myth, and in story. And those, for Lewis, are another world, not in the sense of being a fabricated, made-up, illusory, imaginary alternative to our world, but the other world is a way of knowing the real world, the world we, in fact, live in, this world, for Lewis in a kind of richness, depth, complexity, and fullness that we cannot know by means of ordinary work-a-day, time-to-go-to-work, time-to-eat-lunch consciousness. That paradoxically, for Lewis, we know more about where we are, who we are, and what we are by means of the other world than by means of what we ordinarily think of as this world. That is why, I think, that conviction is why he became a medievalist and focused his attentions professionally on medieval, renaissance, and classical literature. Because the writers, on the whole, of medieval, classical, and renaissance literature believed in the other world, whether they were pagan, whether they were Christian, whether they were skeptical even, in all cases, the other world as a source of meaning, as a source of knowledge, as a realm which in some profound way informed and oriented this world, for all of those folks, that was a given. And so in a fundamental sense, Lewis shared a worldview and orientation with these classical medieval and Renaissance figures, which he did not share with figures who wrote in more recent times. Dante, the Gawain poet, who goes to the castle of Sir Bersalak and who goes in Pearl to a vision of heaven, those people were his spiritual kin. And so, too, as he tells us, some of his contemporaries, George MacDonald, the, to me, almost unreadable Scottish fairy tale writer, who, so Lewis says, baptized his imagination on a train station one day in 1916 when he picked up the book Fantasties. So too Beatrix Potter. I don't know many people who claim to have had their life changed by Squirrel Nutkin, but Lewis was one. He says in it he fell in love with the idea of autumn, and it was a source of joy to him. Another personal friend, Charles Williams, a writer of more to me, pretty much unreadable novels. And, of course, J.R.R. Tolkien, writer of novels which were very readable indeed. All of them believed in the other world, relied on the other world. Okay, so what about this other world stuff? Now, for Lewis, it clearly has a religious dimension, 
primarily a religious dimension, and indeed, in Lewis's case, an explicitly Christian dimension. But I would argue you don't need to be either religious or Christian to see at least part of what Lewis means by that other world, and indirectly then by joy. Because consciousness, think of this, this is really true, consciousness acts as a kind of filter. We are aware when we are fully conscious and self-conscious of only a tiny part of what is coming into us, right? There are Textures and fluctuations as the wind blows over the grass in the surface of a lake in the array of leaves outside of us in the patterns on the on the rug on the floor everywhere sounds sights that we just don't pay attention to and indeed consciousness is designed to filter out so that we can pay attention to what is important for us to know we are consciously selecting and narrowing our sensory experience. That's just fact. And not only that, there are inside of us all kinds of hardwired neurological programs for sorting and organizing experience which operate almost entirely unconsciously. And then think of memory. All sorts of things which are not conscious to us at a given moment, which may rest outside of consciousness for years and suddenly come forward in full richness and panoply. All of this array of unattended to experience, of unattended to memory, of unattended to processing, of unattended to recombinations and potentials for recombination lies close to us in ordinary consciousness to awaken only in dreams, visions, interestingly enough, and I would argue in moments of insight and creative thought, when we forge connections which are new to us, when connections bubble up into our consciousness from below or beyond or outside, which weren't there before, in story and imagination, in joy itself, in religious experience. We know in that sense and Lewis knew that we know, and it sounds paradoxical, we know more than we know. We know much, much more than we know. Because our ordinary consciousness, again, is narrow. But in fact, huge resources lie open to us, which are accessible at other times and other places. And in fact, these other resources are really the reality which conditions where we live. And it is vastly richer, vastly richer than where we find ourselves ordinarily. One of Lewis's keynote phrases, which he repeats over and over in various contexts, is the inside is bigger than the outside. And there is nowhere of which that's more obviously true than your head, which is the size of a melon. And what is inside of a melon in this biochemical goo that is in there? The universe. Everything that's ever been, everything that ever will be, everything that you know, everything that you've seen. You go inside this little place, not even a cubic foot. Everything. That is a metaphor 
in a sense, you can think of for Lewis of the doors into the other world. Well, okay, so what? None of this particularly would matter very much if Lewis weren't, unlike some of the people whom he admires, an immensely gifted writer. Even more, maybe, than his ability to chronicle joy. What's amazing about C.S. Lewis is he is so phenomenally readable. And in all of his works, by the way, and his works of all kinds, he just has the golden touch. He writes with an ease, fluidity, and transparency that makes him, whether you like him or not, whether you disagree with him or not, a real pleasure to read. We're going to be focusing in the lectures to follow primarily on his fictional works, and those are, in the first instance, the three works of his space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength, then the seven Chronicles of Narnia, and finally, a work which he wrote towards the end of his life, Till We Have Faces, which is not as much read as the others, but is very interesting. I won't talk further about those fictional works now. Instead, I want to talk a little bit about some of his other works, because, in fact, his literary and scholarly and religious life resulted in three different kinds of works, and he wrote a lot of all of them. As popular in terms of sales as his fictional works were his works of Christian apologetics. And I should explain in this context that apologetics does not mean apologies. Apologetics means something more like popular theology, meaning theology addressed to ordinary people, or explanations. And Lewis's original theme really came more from his apologetic works than from anything else. His best-selling single book, in fact, is Mere Christianity, which is the written version of a series of lectures which he was invited to give on the air during World War II in 1942, in fact, by the British Broadcasting Company, BBC. Mere Christianity, Ordinary Christianity, the bare bones of Christian belief, and that is immensely popular, especially especially among the various coteries of Lewis readers, the various populations to whom his works appeal. Mere Christianity is especially beloved by conservative Christians. It is a mainstay on reading lists for people in that group. He has, and he shows this to some degree in his works of fiction as well, not only a gift for evoking joy, but a gift also for ferreting out self-indulgences and self-deceptions, for ways in which we try to persuade ourselves that we're living up to our ideals when we're really not. To read Lewis's books of Christian apologetics, and this is one of the things that his conservative Christian readers, his Anglican readers deeply value, and of course his secular readers find objectionable, to read one of Lewis's works of Christian apologetics is very much like having a systematic examination of conscience. It's not like having somebody wagging their finger at you and saying, bad, 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 bad. It's more like having a little voice inside of you saying, well, hmm, I'm afraid, yeah. He gets inside your head. 
and confronts the ways in which you construct fictions for yourself to prevent yourself, again, from recognizing the full degree of how badly you're messing up, if you are indeed messing up. Again, Christian readers really love that. The work that really made him famous, though, also was in 1942. That was his Annus Mirabilis, was the Screw Tape Letters. The Screw Tape Letters were first published in the Manchester Guardian, one after the other, and later collected in book form. And they purport to be the letters of a senior administrative devil to a junior devil on how to go about tempting a young Englishman during World War II away from religious belief, away from Christianity, and into the devil's camp. And they are witty, are shrewd, and were, to the surprise of all, a great success. And they really made Lewis's name. He went on to write many, many other apologetical works, The Problem of Pain, Miracles, and so forth. And all of these continue to gain, to this very day, a very, very large readership. Indeed, there's grown up to be a kind of a contention between two different schools of Lewis devotees and Lewis readers. One has been led by a man by the name of Walter Hooper, who for two months in the summer of the last year of Lewis's life served as his secretary and has served as his posthumous editor for many years now, bringing out books of collections of snippets from various Lewis works and publishing works that were left behind unpublished uh, during Lewis's lifetime and so forth. A devout admirer of Lewis and originally a high Anglican, later a convert to Catholicism. Hooper's vision of Lewis is, in effect, as an Anglican saint. And it's worth noting that very recently, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church in America, did adopt an annual minor feast day in honor of C.S. Lewis, which is as close, in fact, as the Anglican Church comes these days to declaring someone a saint. So Hooper and his followers are not alone in their opinion of the moral value of Lewis's works and presumably life. On the other hand, I already spoke about the deep affection which Lewis's apologetical works have engendered among conservative Christians. And indeed, Lewis's brother, who lived with him for most of his life and who outlived him, met in 1966 a guy by the name of Clyde S. Kirby from Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton College is a leading evangelical college in the United States, a conservative Christian college, and Kirby impressed Warney Lewis, Lewis's older brother, enough that Warney Lewis willed the family papers to Wheaton, where they now form the centerpiece of a collection at the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton, which indeed has even one of the two candidates as the original wardrobe of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. 
And so I am told if you go to Wheaton, you can look at the original entrance to Narnia, as Lewis characterizes it, in its woody splendor. Those apologetical works, again, have proved hugely influential. Only the fictional works as much so. Lewis's scholarly works, I think, are undervalued, in part because of the prominence of his fictional works and even more his evangelical works. In Lewis's day and at present, the academic world is overwhelmingly secular and often aggressively secular. Lewis's manifest commitments did him no professional service. In fact, they impeded his professional career, and they have done his scholarly works no professional service. I think very strongly that they are underappreciated and undervalued. They are very, very good. For my money, he was the best medievalist of the 20th century. There are others who are close. I, I don't mean to suggest otherwise. But his learning is simply dazzling. One of his colleagues in England, as a professor, and a man not otherwise much in sympathy with Lewis, called him the best-read man in England, and he must have been. He knew this is staggering. By the time he was out of his teens, he knew Greek and Latin pretty much dead cold, and also French, Italian, and German pretty well. He later went on to learn Old English and Middle English dead cold, studied Old Icelandic. He was a man who read everything he could read in the original. He knew his stuff. His first scholarly work was called The Allegory of Love, and it, to me, is perhaps the most dated of his works, though still it's very valuable. It came out in 1936, and it is still as influential as any study of courtly love. That's the love between knights and ladies. Some people think his best work, and this is still very much in print, as is, in fact, uh, The Allegory of Love, and very much in use, is a preface to Paradise Lost, where, among other interesting things, he introduces the distinction between primary oral epics like Homer and secondary written epics like Virgil or Paradise Lost, which is a commonplace of criticism to this very day. After that, he was commissioned to write the third volume in the Oxford History of English Literature. It has the rather forbidding title of English Literature in the 16th Century Excluding Drama, or, as you could put it, Shakespeare with no Shakespeare. And it is not much read, and in some ways the most forbidding and the most obviously learned of his books, but We'll take a look at it in our concluding lecture. There is some terrific stuff in it, and no work demonstrates more deeply how very, very learned Lewis was. His best work, and maybe his best work of all, certainly his best scholarly work, in my view, is called The Discarded Image, An Introduction to Medieval and Renaissance Literature. That came out in 1964. It's a very late work in his life, a work of his autumn, so to speak. It's calm, genial, 
ripe, immensely learned, but he writes with perfect taste, perfect critical perception, and with the lightest of touches. And in a way, if you read carefully everything he ever said scholarly in terms of fiction, and even though with the lightest of touches apologetically, is in that book. Because, of course, the medieval and Renaissance people that he's writing about believed what he believed. Before we move on, let me take just a moment here to outline the rest of the course. In the lecture following this, we'll take a look at Lewis's own life story and his times. We'll then devote the next three lectures to his space trilogy, Paralandra, Out of the Silent Planet, and That Hideous Strength. We'll devote six lectures to the Chronicles of Narnia, which are, after all, his best-known and best-loved works of fiction. And then we'll wind up with one lecture on his last novel, Till We Have Faces, another lecture on his apologetic works, his works in defense of Christian belief and the strategies that he employs in writing those. And finally, we'll take a look at his scholarly works. But for now... In our next lecture, we'll take a look at the life of C.S. Lewis and at the various circumstances which helped to give that life the shape it had. After listening to Lecture 1, a student posed this question to Professor Shutt. Can you train yourself to find joy? Let's listen to the professor's response. No, I don't think that Lewis would say you could train yourself to joy. And he very explicitly does say that conscious efforts to seek joy as such are misconceived. They are making a God of what should be a road to God or a reflection of God, to put it that way. You can't seek religious experience. You can only seek to open yourself and to do what you're supposed to, right? So, you're always, in some sense, surprised by joy. It is, among other things, I think he would argue from a theological perspective, a manifestation of grace. But grace, by virtue of the word, gracia in Latin, is something that you get for free. It's a gift. You can't force your way into it. And indeed, he writes in his autobiography, Lewis does, that when he was younger, he tried to sort of force himself into joy, and it just flat out does not work. It's, it happens when you're looking not at the feeling, but at what lies beyond. This ends Lecture 1.